This is Southeast Asia Crossroads, an educational podcast from the Center for Southeast Asian Studies at Northern Illinois University. I'm Eric Jones, your host. Join me and my colleague, Gantana Teboriruk, as we sit down with Duncan McCargo, Professor of Political Science at the University of Leeds. Well, welcome everyone. We're here today with another edition of Southeast Asia Crossroads. We have as our special guest, uh, Duncan McCargo. Welcome. Nice to be here. And also, as with me, is as as not always, but not always. We'd, we'd like in it to spirit. Be. In spirit, I am always here. Mm-hmm. This is Ganjana from the Thai Studies and Thai Language Program here at NIU. Yeah. So, so thanks everyone for for joining us. Um, Duncan is here to uh, Professor McCargo is here to present to our Southeast Asian Student Conference, and so we're grateful mm-hmm. his his contributions to to graduate student studies and graduate students um, are, are, are well known and maybe to start off something that an entree that many students have with you is through your work an article that's heavily assigned um, network monarchy and legitimacy crisis in Thailand and Pacific Review has has called this important it's it shows up on um, all these lists and and you know, that we're supposed to read the, the things that <laughs> yes. one is supposed to read it, it is <laughs> is many of ours foundation <laughs> In yeah. Southeast Asian studies. So, so help us understand what went into it and uh, some cr- critical insights that maybe help folks to, to, to really get at what you were trying to get across. Yeah, I mean, the article speaks for itself, and uh, I'd en- encourage people to take another look at it. Um, but to give you a little bit of background, I think... I was in the privileged position of being able to read the draft of Paul Hanley's biography of the king before it was published. Mm. Uh, And Mm. I was also at that time very immersed in trying to understand the conflict that was taking place in the South. And one of the things that I really started to see from looking at that was that there was a power network that went beyond the palace itself. So what what my problem, you know, I talked to Paul a lot and I've, I've... had many exchanges with him over the years, but the thing that I always discuss with him is how much is it really about one person and how much is this all about a whole social system, a whole way of thinking and a whole way of acting that is not limited to that one person. So what I tried to, to write as a sort of anticipatory antidote to what Paul was saying, although very strongly influenced by okay. a lot of the approach that he was taking. Okay, we know about the king, and you've written this book about the king, which is obviously going to be a very important book, but we sort of need to get beyond the individual members of the royal family to understand what's going on politically here. So I tried to get people to engage with... The thing I'm still grappling with and trying to understand the whole time, which is what is the nature of power in a country like Thailand? And I believe that the nature of power is highly diffuse. I don't believe that one person or a very small number of people are able to sit in some building somewhere and give out instructions that everybody else will then follow. And I believe that the way in which you exert and demonstrate power and influence in a country like Thailand may not involve actually doing a great deal. Once people believe that they're working for a particular cause, in this case they believe that they're working on behalf of the monarchy, they're trying to accomplish things for the monarchy. Uh, one of my students, Sir uh, Unaldi, just has his book out where he talks about working towards the monarchy. Um, then, which is another development of the idea of network monarchy, then we stop focusing on a particular institution or individual and we try to understand how the system works in a broader sense. 
So that's what that article attempts to, to describe. It says there's a network of people, some of whom have never met any member of the royal family and never go anywhere mm-hmm. near the palace, but are nevertheless, at least in their own imaginations, trying to carry out what they believe would be the royal will or to, or to adhere to fidelity to a certain set of ideas that they associate with that institution. So to understand how things work, we have to move beyond just looking at what we can see, the visible uh, institutions and understand the underpinning, the invisible institutions and networks and all the people who are working in different ways to advance their causes. And maybe I didn't make clear enough in the original article that not all those people are really on the same page. Actually, (laughs) their understandings of what they're trying to do may be very, very diverse and very variant. So some of those people actually have a a kind of quasi-liberal political position. Others have an extremely conservative political position. Um, they're not all doing the same thing, but what brings them together is a shared belief that they're doing it on behalf of an institution that, for the most part, they don't have a great deal to do with on a day-to-day basis. So that was what I was trying to explain in that article. Uh, Some people have understood it, some people have misunderstood it. There are now quite a few articles out critiquing it or elaborating on it, some of which I would agree with and some of which I I don't agree with. And so far I've just stepped back from the fray and let those people, you know, do what it is that they wanted to do and and have their say. Maybe at some point I'll respond to them and say, actually, uh, I don't think I quite meant that. Or now that I read your article, I understand that I didn't explain this very well and I agree with you. So that's what's happening at the moment with this Network Monarchy article. It's a concept that somehow took on a life of its own. I guess this this is what, as social scientists or as scholars of Thailand or Southeast Asia, we're trying to do. We're trying to come up with, um, Robert Cribb called these things heroic couplets, you know, two words that you put together as some kind of oxymoron. Um, which catch people's imagination and then keep being recited and repeated and in the process distorted, mangled and lost. <laughs> and that's really what I'm aspiring to do as okay. a scholar, to find ways of getting people to think slightly differently, whether in agreement with me or not, by provoking them with a particular construct. Which And people do glamorize this as theory, and I don't think I really do theory, but what I do is uh, provocative terminologies or concepts or phrases which I try to use to insinuate into the discourse and slightly change the way in which people think. So I feel like Network Monarchy is the the first one of those that I managed to launch. I've tried to launch some others, but uh, it's taken on a life of its own. And that's the purpose, really, with this kind of idea. You put something out there and it takes on a life of its own. You can't control it anymore. You have to let go of it. It's just a conversation starter. Right. Yeah. That's right. What what is what has been the Thai response to to your article? Well, Thai response is obviously mixed. There are some people who don't like the article, and I have been reprimanded by some senior figures in Thai society for having <laughs> written the article. Um, as they do, as as will happen. Yeah, and that's fair enough. But the other thing is that it sort of took on a life of its own in the Thai context and has been used by a lot of Thai scholars. And you'll see Thai scholars debating on Facebook what exactly is meant by network monarchy. And, you know, it comes up all the time. And I was initially criticized for coming up with this phrase because there's no Thai equivalent of the phrase. You know, what you should do is you should take some phrase in Thai and Uh then give it a twist and put it into English. Uh, 
And I didn't do that. I came up with a phrase that I couldn't find any exact equivalent for in Thai. But I think it's now become uh, internalized within a, within a Thai discourse. And that is something that uh, is very interesting in itself. The, so fill us in on the second part of this heroic couplet. Um, yeah. Is it urbanized villagers? Is that the... Uh... Okay, right. Yes. yes, yes. Speaking of starting conversations. Yeah. Starting conversations. Yeah, what, okay. is, what, what is the urbanized villager? Yeah, urbanized villagers are um, something I think that's incredibly important. And not just in Thailand, by the way. I mean, I'm particularly aware of it in Thailand, but I can talk about it in the context of other parts of Southeast Asia as well. So when the 2010 red shirt protest took place in Bangkok between March and, and May, I was actually not in Thailand and I was not able to do first-hand research on that, that very troubling episode you know, myself. But my former PhD student and colleague at Chula, Ajana Lumon Tapshumpon, she um, got together with a group of her students and went out and talked to a lot of the red shirts who were on the streets of Bangkok and try to work out who exactly these people were, the people who were dedicated enough to the pro-taxin cause that they would go and sleep on concrete floors in Ratbasong and, and sort of get themselves into potentially dangerous situations, uh, stay there for some extended periods of time and so on. Who are these people? Uh, so she did surveys and interviews and I sat down with her and we put all that material together and we also spent a lot of time looking at what other scholars, mostly Thai scholars, had come up with. So there were a number of other research papers that came out. To try to understand the same demographic? To, they were trying right. to understand the same demographic in slightly different ways and from slightly different angles. So we then published an article in Asian Survey in 2011, which talks about the red shirt protests and urbanized villages. We coined that phrase and tried to put it out there. The phrase has resonances and similarities with some of our colleagues' terminologies, but it's also different. So, um, Charles Kais has talked about cosmopolitan villages, um, and Andrew Walker has talked about political peasants uh, and the, an idea of peasants as a very important political grouping in Thailand. We didn't like those ideas. We don't think that these people are cosmopolitan. Just because they move around from one place to another doesn't make them cosmopolitan because cosmopolitanism has a connotation of liberalism and open-mindedness and that wasn't something that we found in the people that we talked to. So to, right. our, to our mind, to mm -hmm. call them cosmopolitan is a romanticization of these people who can't be romanticized uh, even if one has a degree of sympathy with them. We don't want to turn them into something that they're not. Nor do we think that the idea of peasants is a terribly useful idea. One of the most interesting terminologies or explanations that we used in that article was taking a... Uh, there's an article by Prawait Wasi, the distinguished medical doctor and social reformer whose work I followed for, for many, many years and who I, I have at various times had long conversations with. So he argued that there were different types of red shirt protesters, um, and at the core of those really is a group of people that, that are effectively what he thinks of as poor farmers, which is a, a terminology picked up by lots of people. So Narmon and I argued that people we're looking at are poor and they're farmers, except that these poor farmers are neither poor nor farmers. Right. Uh, 
and it's what again it's all about nuance so you need to get okay we start with that idea these people are poor and farmers and then we need very rapidly to move beyond both of these characterizations because they're incredibly misleading even though they're our starting point okay so why are these people poor they're poor in the sense that they do not have the economic security and stability as say lower middle class people in bangkok but actually and many, the privilege network and the privilege network but when we talk to them uh, about their income levels and the kind of things they were able to do with their money, they weren't very different from a lot of the lower middle classes in Bangkok. However, in order to get there, they were hustling like crazy. They were working, uh, sending their kids off to work away. They themselves uh, were supposedly living in a village, say in Mahasarakam, but were actually uh, driving taxis in Bangkok or working on uh, Factories and it sounds like if you peel back stuff. a little bit, they're yep. they're not poor farmer. They're, that doesn't describe what they're doing, who they are, as very well at all. Right, but but they're poor in the sense that they don't have economic security. This is all very vulnerable. You know, if they don't mm. manage to make enough money, they don't uh, hustle. If they don't right. hustle, they don't sell enough Amway this month. They don't whatever mm. it is. They can't keep up their car payments, and they're actually going to fall off the the edge. So they're on this this precarious position where they're actually doing quite well but they're also very vulnerable and they have debt but outwardly yeah they're driving around in pickup trucks and they're dressed very similarly to these lower middle class people they're not that different uh farmers yeah they distinguished from the lower middle class people in bangkok in that they do have land or some kind of connection to family land mm -hmm. however they're not farmers in the sense that they don't anymore really farm that land and in many cases haven't done for quite a long time, but they certainly don't now. They so collect they're, rents. They're paying other people to farm yeah. the land for them who are often illegal migrants from Cambodia mm -hmm. or Burma. Uh, and they might go back a few weeks of the year to take part in rice harvesting and planting, but less and less do they even do that. So they are kind of post farmers. They do have some land associated with them, uh, which they may or may not be farming themselves anymore. Uh, but they're not farmers in any real sense. Even though if you ask them, some of them might even say, uh, if I, if you say, what's your occupation? They're going to tell you that they're actually... They have this incredible pride in being farmers, in, despite the fact they don't do any real farming. So you can't completely trust people when you ask them their occupation. You really have to probe into, okay, your occupation is farmer, but where does your income come from? Oh, well, you know, that's a completely different story. So right. this is why, so the urbanized villagers, there are a couple of processes going on here. One is that if you take a province like Mahasarakam, which I know quite well, it allegedly has a population of approaching a million people. Uh, if we were to take a bunch of students from NIU and go and look for these million people in Mahasarakam tomorrow morning, we'd be very, very hard pressed because three or 400,000 of them are actually either in Bangkok or in the five provinces around Bangkok working somewhere. But their names are still on the electoral register. So these okay. people have this identity. This is why they're still, quote unquote, uh, farmers, or at the very least, they are villagers. Um, they continue to have that connection with the countryside, uh, which is a, a legal and political connection in right. terms of voting as well. 
So there's that whole phenomenon. So people in Bangkok are inclined to say, these people are just poor farmers from the countryside who don't know anything. Well, the poor farmers from the countryside are actually driving you around today. They're selling you things. They're in your house right. working. Uh, they're not, they may be notionally from the countryside, but they're actually effectively Bangkokians just like you. And they know as much as you do. In fact, they know more because they know what's going on outside Bangkok and you never leave Bangkok. Right. So they have a degree of sophistication, which is not cosmopolitanism, uh, but they, they are sophisticated at that level. So... That's that's one dimension of it. The urbanized villagers are the villagers, the Chauban, who are in the Murang uh, of, of Bangkok and Greater Bangkok. The other thing is that the villages themselves are becoming urbanized, and there's a new form of urban life in many, many places right. in the provinces. And the hub has grown outside of right. Bangkok. Absolutely. The hubs have been growing. And, you know, so, for example... Um, and Nate Lautamatat did a study, and that's one of the ones we looked at, where he talks about people in uh, Tesaban and, and classifies people on the basis of whether or not they live in the Tesaban or municipality. But you only have to go to any municipality outside Bangkok, uh, and you quickly realize there's a huge sign saying you're now entering Tesaban, whatever it is. But hang on a minute, we've been in town for at least the last two kilometers. The boundaries of the Tesaban are now a fiction. Allegedly, you enter the municipality right. at a certain point, but the municipality has has an arc and it's a been circumference swallowed. been completely swallowed. So all these people are peri-urban. They're technically not in a municipality, but for all intents and purposes, they are. So two processes are going on, and these processes are not very well understood and discussed, even by most of the people who've studied them. So we argue that, in short, Tax and Shinawat whether or not his policies and the policies of the governments that supported him, the Samak and, and Yinglak governments, really helped those people or not, he captured the imagination of those people, mobilized them politically. Right. If you talk to all of them, they say, we don't want to work in the fields, we want to send our kids to university, we want our kids to become middle class, we want them to have opportunity, and we want to demand political participation in the society. We're no longer just going to sit in the north and northeast voting for whatever useless politicians you choose to send us to stand as political candidates in our area. So that's the sense in which those people have become uh, a very, very strong political force, which whatever you do in terms of meddling with institutions and arrangements and voting systems and so on, you can't really neutralize the fact. And even if Tax and Chinuat drop dead tomorrow morning, they've already the, been these mobilized. people have already been mobilized and they've already had their conception of who they are completely transformed right. over the past 15 years. The people weren't mobilized, but right. their identity yes. was mobilized. And yep. that's even more powerful. Right. So... That's the argument we make. It works particularly well in the northeast, where the population is very mobile. But a lot of this argument applies in the north. When I was in Cambodia in 2013 yeah, for just the elections, ask in other yeah. places that you think it works, absolutely. So yeah, I was in Cambodia in 2013, and I spent um, about 10 days there during the time of the elections. And my student, because I used to teach in Cambodia for six months, and I have a group of students there. My student said, "We want to take you." to the province to see what's going on in my home province, how the voting is. Okay, um, the, the way we're going to go, we just have to cross the river. Okay, so we'll wait for the ferry. All right. And how long is it to wait for the ferry? Oh, usually about an hour. Fine. We were waiting for the ferry for the best part of 10 hours, and then we bribed our way, my student bribed our way to the front of the line, and we were otherwise we'd have been there another as we four do. hours, as has happened in other countries. Um, so during the 10 hours while we were waiting... 
I was able to witness all the other people who were waiting to go home for the election, which was the next day. Who are these people? They're all factory workers and people working in the service sector in and around Phnom Penh who are going back to but their they're home. registered back home. Uh, they're registered back home and they're going back home. And I t- had lots of chance to talk to people because we were waiting for a long time and they had nothing to do and they were very happy to tell me what was going on. What are you doing? They said, you know, Sam Ryansay came back to Cambodia last week and a million people came out to welcome him at the airport so that he could run in the election. And, you know, the government wouldn't even allow the TV channels to report this news. We have got it on video. You know, I've got, here's Sam Ranze on my phone. I am going to go back and show all of the people in my village, all my family and neighbors, look, you know, they're lying to you. They're not telling you what's going on. Now is the time. You really have to ask yourself why you keep voting for the existing government party, the CPP, and why do you don't consider some alternative? Because they are not telling you the full story and things are not what they see. And, you know, that was the election in which there was a massive swing of support to the opposition and much of that electoral shift was as a result of these urbanized villages and when you talk to people from either the ruling party or the opposition party they didn't get it they're still talking about how oh, Cambodia's divided into a small group of urban people and then all these people who are living in the countryside and they don't know very much so they're reliant on the information that we give them no no and no you know neither side of the Cambodian political spectrum could get it so There's obviously a lot more to be said, and we're not the only people to have said a similar thing, but I've tried to use this phrase about urbanized villages to capture some of the dynamism of social change, because one of the things I've been able to do uh, for many years going to Thailand is to keep sort of one foot in Bangkok and one foot in other places, be it the Deep South or the Northeast to get another angle on what's happening. And it's a it's a provocative oxymoron. Right. That, that exactly. And it makes you think, well, that doesn't make sense. How can you be urbanized and a villager? How can you be Chauban and yet yet be in an urban area? But in fact, they are. And what's interesting also is that with the, the growing regional hubs, some of the, the cultural um, and economic uh, indexicality mm. of the people in that region, not everyone's turning to Bangkok anymore. Right. Right. So the formerly uh, Isan people who might want be, who might be drawn at first to Bangkok and I will Konken mm-hmm. is also big enough for me to have opportunities for right. economic development or um, Korat. Right. Yep. And I think the, the, idea of mobilizing an identity has been most effective in, in Isan because of how externally maintained it has mm-hmm. been by the ruling class. And then you see that happening and manifesting also in the South. And now a little bit from the North, you're mm. feeling this growth oh, of a, a strong... Oh, quite a lot. Or, or a yeah. revitalization of oh, a strong yeah, yeah. Northern identity, yeah, which absolutely. I'm interested to see how that yeah. is going to play out politically because right. they haven't always been very prominent in Thai politics. Yeah. No, one of the other dimensions of this is uh, regional or call it sub-ethnic or linguistic identities that have been suppressed in this totalizing idea of Thai-ness and everybody's Thai and there aren't any differences anymore. And you can see how in recent years that, well, the suppression has obviously completely failed in Bhattani where people have just risen up and said, no way, we're ever going to be Thai. We're just going to uh, keep challenging you. It's and hard to make them feel means. like a minority when they're the majority right. in their it, town. Right? Exactly. But, but to a lesser extent and in different ways, the same kind of phenomenon has broken out in other parts of the country where people are 
and that was part of the, the reason why the military got so freaked out in the run-up to the coup because people were saying well if you're going to go off on your own way and support the, these PDRC protesters then we might as well separate from you uh, and we'll have our own country and then I would meet elite people in Bangkok who were saying they should try having their own country you know we don't need them um, we'll just cut them off and they'll be like you know they don't have a coastline so they'd obviously just wither and die like Switzerland <laughs> that's Switzerland oh oh yeah oh actually they're doing quite well Hey listeners, conference alert. Join leading Burma scholars from around the world at the 12th International Burma Studies Conference, October 6th to 9th at Northern Illinois University in DeKalb, Illinois, celebrating 30 years of the Center for Burma Studies and the Burma Art Collection at NIU. And now, back to the podcast. When you mention um, the handheld evidence on the cell phone, right, yeah. of, of this media, and you right. tapped into that a little bit in your talk sure. about um, the Constitutional Court yes. and the YouTubization yes. of right. the Thai sure. constitutional system. Right. And I think that has been a very interesting development mm-hmm. in terms of political political um, process yep. in Thailand and, of course, everywhere in Southeast Asia yep. as well. Um, do you see similar things happening? Is it a similar phenomenon in, in the region? Or are there specific ways that mass media or social media is being used in each of the specific um, situations that may result in different um, paths? You mean in different countries? Yes. Yeah, I don't know if I can speak about it right across the the region because I haven't studied nearly systematically enough. Um, So I'd like to stick with what I know, as it were. But, yeah, there are some interesting things going on. And clearly, if I was starting off now and doing my PhD, I think I would really want to be working on on some of the social media stuff on the kinds of political discourse and mobilization that goes on. I mean, I'm not one of these people who's romanticizing social media because what you see in the Thai context, this is another paper that I'm trying to write with a Thai colleague, and I've got lots of different Spoilers aside. Still on the go, yeah. Um, (laughs) But one of the phenomena that's so apparent is a rise of online defamation. Um, People tend to be very focused on the state. You know, the state is suppressing information and the state is repressing us. And yeah, the state certainly has been doing that, particularly since the coup in 2014. But uh, the other thing is just how nasty ties become once they're hiding behind pen names and how vicious and unpleasant they can be to each other. And the civility that we used to imagine existed in Thai public discourse just completely collapses once people... It's almost as like those those inner monologues are now out. That's right, yeah. No, and it's gone. And, and yeah, people are, can be vicious on social media all over the world, but in the, the, the viciousness on Thai social media is it's fairly alarming, really. It's, it's Especially from where it's perceived to have come from. Yes. I mean, I think it comes out of a tradition. And, you know, I wrote a book about the Thai language press uh, based on my research in the 90s, and I talked in that book about the tradition of anonymous newspaper columns, how if you're a newspaper columnist, you're licensed to write in a very venomous and savage and critical way, and everybody enjoys it, and you don't use your real name. But everyone is a journalist now. Right, but yes, you just had a few people who were licensed to write write in that kind of way, and it was a form of entertainment. It was in a specific part of the newspaper, not on the front page. It was a restricted genre. Yeah, Yeah, there was a certain zone within the newspaper where people could sound off in these emotional ways, hiding behind silly pen names and everybody knew what was going on and it was a controlled zone now it's a it's a free-for-all 
Uh, everybody's doing it. It's not just these Baiblu, these anonymous leaflets being handed to you as you walk through the Sanam Luang and saying, that's, do you know that such and such a minister is doing blah, blah, blah. Now that stuff is, or nor is that, that stuff by the 90s when I was doing my field, it was arriving from the fax machine. So you'd be in Tyra, mm-hmm. Tyrat or Matishon newspaper yes. and the Baiblu would be coming <laughs> off the fax machine. So they've been uh, disseminated by new means. But now that stuff is, is everywhere. And, and it's instant. It's instant. And it's... It's just coming in torrents. And that, for a country that already has some kind of tendency towards political polarization, which is becoming more and more evident from the earliest years of the 21st century, I think uh, the rise of social media uh, and people's growing appetites for posting every kind of vicious denunciatory thing about their... um, they're everything Advers- and everyone. They're, they're, yes, but especially their adversaries of very adversaries in love, adversaries in politics, adversaries in business. Um, what you see is a very destabilizing effect that this has on society. So, on one hand, you're opening up political space, which is supposed to be great, but what people are doing with that space is not always uh, finding the opportunity to comment critically and analytically on the latest draft of the Constitution. Not always contributing to progress. No, no. And it's not always a civil kind of discourse that's taking place. So that is a problem. And it's, this, and it's easy to fall back on the, the evil sense of government line, which is very, very salient now with the military in charge. But frankly, this is way beyond that. This is about how people behave and communicate with each other with no government in sight as well. Uh, people have to really face up to that. Uh, and and is- for the, the Thai political process or participation to kind mm. of more or less come of age in the social mm. media era, yeah. uh, I think has right. resulted in a different outcome. Um, my follow-up question is, so much of the Thai politicking process is through network, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. How do you think social network has contributed to that, even in expanding it or making uh, certain networks that maybe were tenuous or mm. very distant seem closer. There's a perceived intimacy, right, to social mm-hmm. network that may not be realized. How do you think that's affected the the Kukai yeah. in Thai politics? Well, I think that the difference is that those networks have always been there and they've always been cross-cutting. So everybody's attempts to to put people into categories have always been actually very inadequate given the fact that the two sides that supposedly hate each other always have back channels and they're oh, actually course, often of turn course. out to be really it, the same side. Yeah. Dense network map if you right. were to network map, yeah. That's right. Yeah. But what we have had uh, with the rise of this very polarized social media and I think a lot of it started with what I call partisan TV. So once you have uh, ASTV and Blue Sky TV and their counterparts on the other side, things like Asia Update, uh, you get to a point where no longer are you exposed to either the the rather bland television news of essentially government-controlled TV stations. Of royal events. There's royal events, and, and then there's official statements by politicians of both sides and senior government officials and not very much else. Um, it's very C-SPAN. Yes. Uh, and then, of course, you have the... Um, Fascinating. <laughs> what I call the the polyvalent newspapers of which Tyrat 
is the epitome <laughs> where you have people speaking in different voices in the same newspaper so that whoever comes out on top you've always got an, an in with who the next government is going to be and Maddie Sean was trying to emulate that and other newspapers tried to emulate that with slightly less success but then you move with this era of partisan TV into a situation where you just hear the messages from the people that you support and right. you hear those messages over and over again 24 hours a day until you start reciting them in your sleep and so I would go and see people and they would just... And you can't remember uh, feeling any differently. Right. And and you, conversations stop, ceased being conversations. Down to like talking points? Talk, yes. Mm-hmm. You get to the point where I go and see my very yellow friend and they just recite a whole lot of ASTV talking points, which were from Santi Limtonka's speech the night before, which were the same speech that he'd given the previous 42 nights. Uh, and, the, and the same... <laughs> just is, to make sure you get his point. <laughs> right. And the same is happening with the red shirt people who just t- tell you endlessly about Song Matra and double standards and blah, 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 blah. Uh, it just becomes incredibly tedious because instead of creating a space where you say, well, on the one hand, there's this problem, on the other hand, that one, how are we going to move forward? Uh, you have this view and I have that view. Um, a back and forth recitation. Yeah. Yeah. So, in fact, these new forms of media, which are supposed to have facilitated a more uh, open and inclusive kind of debate and move politics forward, end up throwing politics in a backwards into the clong to use a Thai expression and yeah. and it and the color has become an identity mm-hmm. quite a bit and yeah. I because I study choice of pronoun um, <laughs> and negotiation right. of yeah. pronouns um, in in Thai language interaction um, the color now mm. is part of that negotiation sure. mm-hmm. you know and and people will ha- will handle will feel obligated to present themselves very early on in a social interaction but in a lighthearted way to identify as to identify mm-hmm. with whatever color yep. they are and right. they'll say something like oh well you know I'm yellow and and I that's why I feel this way or well you know how we red people get and and it's it's very it's a very interesting mm-hmm. addition to the identity and perceived mm-hmm. um psychological closeness or distance that people do in the beginning mm-hmm. of every Thai in language interaction with others. Yep. Um, and then, of course, there's... We should be these, interviewing you. And, and there are these... Pe- <laughs> and then, of course, I always joke um, that, well, it depends on the day. Sometimes I'm kind of orangey, you know. <laughs> and some days it just depends, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you can joke about it. But right. then there's that underlying recitation yeah. of... Right. of right your faction if you will that's a strong word but yeah Yeah. that's fascinating um (laughs) i'm serious we've left eric speechless i'm like the i was just thinking about fox news but um (laughs) these are versions of that yeah oh definitely but but much worse but with sound effects yeah (laughs) oh way worse yeah yeah, and because the vitriol not, is, and and they're not only you know taking place in the TV studio, but they're actually linked to live events, simultaneous live events in Bangkok and other parts of the country where people are on stages and right. ranting and raving. So and if raving. you were feeling at home and yeah. not particularly inflamed about mm. a particular <laughs> issue, rest assured you will be right. at the yeah. end of this one hour You're segment. Get up. Right. Yeah. Yes, right. you know you you will yeah. you will have already. Yeah. Being in the field by the end of the show. Sure. So, Southern Thailand is perhaps the most important key parts of um, of, of Thailand, but but least understood mm-hmm. and most problematic. So, can you help 
us and our listeners, like how do you how do you unpack? You've written a lot, uh, mapping national anxieties, um, by Nias Press, tearing apart the land, which was uh, Asia Society Book Prize winner um, on on Southern Thailand. So. Mm-hmm. Help us understand what we need to know about Southern Thailand, and and, and are there new insights that, that that you can give us? Yeah, um, as you say, where I've, to start? Where to start? <laughs> I, I spent a number of years working on this, and I published three books on it. And um, back in, in Utah's time, in, in ninety <laughs> seconds or less, the situation is this. I mean. I have an argument, obviously, about the Southern Thai conflict, which I've I've sort of staked out my position, um, and there are people who agree with me and some people who don't agree with me. The essential argument that I'm making is an argument about legitimacy. I believe that there's a legitimacy deficit that the Thai state has not really been able to convince uh, enough of the Malay Muslim population of Patani Yala and Naratiwa that they really... Uh, want to be Thai or to be in Thailand as understood uh, in the present order of things. So that is the core problem that underpins this. And the reason why I always put emphasis on that is because when you go to Thailand, people will start telling you all kinds of other stuff, that the problem is about drugs, smuggling, gangsters, crime, uh, economic underdevelopment. None of this is at all true. It's palpably untrue. And most of it is simple propaganda, which is being advanced by the military and other people who have a vested interest in trying to pretend that there's no underlying political problem in the legitimacy of the Thai state, because it's a very threatening thing to say about any state that you've got a significant political legitimacy problem in one part of your country where nearly a couple of million people They never bought into the late 19th century. Yeah, Yeah, they didn't. And that's fairly clear. Now, so where does that leave us? Of course, there's a lot more pieces to this puzzle. Um, And I'm teaching a class on insurgency in Southeast Asia at Columbia at the moment. And what I always say to my students is grievances are ubiquitous and and armed rebellion is relatively infrequent. So how do we get from the, you know, people in Leeds where I live are very resentful of London, but we're not fighting uh, so far at least a a, a war uh, of insurgency against the powers that be in London and trying to separate ourselves from, from London. Perhaps we should be, but we haven't got to that point yet. <laughs> So how do we get from one point to another? And there's there's other stuff that I've looked at about how that happens. You need elements of repression by the state, and you need people who actively get together and create a particular kind of militant movement which capitalizes upon some of the propaganda themes that, the, that have been provided and uses them to mobilize people in a fairly systematic and, ex- and um, exclusive way. So I have a whole model, which is not just mine, but is, is based on my reinterpretation of a, a book called Why Muslims Rebel by Mohammed Hafiz, who I think is a genius and everybody should read his book. So that's it in a nutshell. Where does that leave us with the situation today? Where it leaves us is that violence in, in the Deep South goes up and down. At the moment, um, there has been a bit of a drop in the number and intensity of violent incidents. The military are in charge and they're they in a let's repress the violence mode with which they had a degree of success also after the previous coup. The problem is that this let's repress the violence kind of approach doesn't in any way grapple with the underlying causes of the problem. Um, 
and the military tend to think that, oh, because the, the violence level has gone down this year, we must be doing everything right, and sooner or later, you know, we'll win everybody over, and they'll decide that they really do love Thailand. They really and, uh, are Thai. They really are after Thai, all. after all. But, you know, unfortunately, this isn't going they to... They need to come round. Right. They're, they're, we're just going to wait for them to see the light. And they're seeing the light, Ajahn, you know. Things are really getting better. The, the, and they I... use Satun oh, yeah, yeah. as the, the model yes. of, of what... Look at what you could be. Right, right. Uh, unfortunately, Satun has a totally different history and a totally different mindset. And right. It's, it's, it's in no way comparable. So that's the problem. What we had, um, you know, I've been talking for some time about, you know, what's the solution to this problem? You can't completely solve these problems, but, you know, I'm teaching comparative conflicts at the moment. It's fairly clear that what's what goes on in Burma, uh, in Aceh, in Mindanao, uh, and what should be going on in Thailand, it's all part of the same thing. This is a political problem. So the question is really, how much decentralization and how much autonomy are you going to give these people? That is the debate. Uh, none of these processes are simple. It doesn't completely stop the violence. But the more you give people ownership of the problem, so it becomes their problem and not a problem that belongs to the capital city of the evil state, uh, then the more people have to take responsibility for their own security and livelihoods and so on. So you have to shift the burden of the problem away from the central state onto the local people, let them take more responsibility for their own affairs and hope that things start to improve that way. That's essentially the only solution to these kind of problems, unless you want to go down the Sri Lanka route of total annihilation, which is uh, you know, a horrifying alternative, really. And, and many predicted... Indonesia might break up mm -hmm. in, in decentralization, yeah. and, it, and it, did not. Not. It, it did not. It did not. And the Aceh example shows that it's quite possible to renegotiate the relationship between certain outlying parts of a country and keep them in, in your country. And you and because, of course, in the Constitution, it says Thailand is a unitary state. And I always say, yeah, I come from the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, you know, and we're united. <laughs> yeah, we ha OK, we have some issues in Northern Ireland and Scotland and Wales, but you know, still we can still be a monarchy uh, and a united country and have some fairly substantial decentralization. These things are not incompatible in any way. And people prefer it if I talk about Britain than if, they t if I talk about Indonesia, because that doesn't go down very well in Thailand when you make those. Mm. Unfortunately, they don't like the Southeast Asian comparisons. They like the European monarchy comparisons. Because they can always say, like well, that. it doesn't work here because right. we're not. Right. right. So Thailand's yeah. unique. Thailand's unique. But <laughs> Britain has some of the same problems, so I'm always open about that. And I talk to people in... in I've spoken to, in Parliament in Bangkok twice in Thai about the Northern Ireland conflict. And people are always struck by the incredible similarities, uh, as I was. And I lived in Belfast for a year, and I experienced it at close quarters. So um, that's the, the question. So what happened during the Yinglak government was, at a certain point, they said, we should be having some kind of peace talks and talking about political options for the future. It didn't go very far, and it didn't really work out very well. One of the reasons it didn't go very far was, of course, the military were not on board, because then uh, the civilian government is asserting control over a part of the country that's really our backyard and our right. area to deal with. So what I always say is the Thai military has to be given credit it has to be acknowledged and recognized as an important force in this conflict. The military themselves have to take ownership of the problem and use the kind of vision that they did in dealing with the Communist Party in the 1980s and so on. Does the military proactively have to embrace the idea of a political solution to the problem? And when they do, we should thank them for it and appreciate what they did and, and recognize their achievement. Um, unfortunately, what's been happening, what, what, what is interesting is after the coup, the military said, 
oh, that peace process was an evil Taksin Shinawat process and we're going to wind it down immediately and stop it because everything that came from the previous government is by definition bad. And then they discovered that all the local people, including a lot of the Buddhists in the Deep South, were quite invested emotionally in this peace process and did not want it just to grind to a halt. So it turned out that even the NCPO, the current regime in Thailand, decided they have to continue with the peace talks. It's just now the peace talks are no longer about finding a political solution and they're just about having talks for the sake of making everything look as though there's something happening while we can find out who the real leaders are and find some way of getting rid of them. That's the peace and order part yes, of the National right. Council. Yeah. So that's the problem. But to me, the issues haven't really changed. Uh, there's no ultimate, despite however we want to characterize the insurgency exactly, whatever technical formulation, uh, there's no security solution possible to this problem. The only ultimate solution is a political solution, which has to involve all parties. The military themselves have to be on board because the civilian politicians can't do it on their own. The civilian politicians do, though, need to be signed up to this, and it needs to both parties, both, both the main sides, need to understand the point of it, uh, and then you can move forward. Um, and I do believe that sooner or later that can happen. But, you know, I've been talking about this for a number of years, and... Virtually every major political figure in Thailand has at some point publicly said they need to go down the autonomy route, but then when they actually get power in their hands and get crammed in by all the vested interests and the untouchable issues start to box them, um, they can't actually progress that agenda. Would the military lose then a source of its perceived legitimacy that it's it's necessary to be in southern Thailand to be... if if I mean, is... Is peace kind of frightening for the military? I, that's a very cynical interpretation that many people subscribe to. Lots of people in Patani will tell you that, oh, they've got no interest in solving the problem. I don't believe that. Uh, I believe the military, I, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm critical of the Thai military, but I'm perfectly willing to give them the benefits of the doubt on that one. I don't think they are benefiting from having uh, troops killed and from being constantly exposed to those sure. vulnerable situations. I think that's what undermines their legitimacy. I think they would gain most from a resolution to the a problem. A victory. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, PR. And, right. They, and they ought to be given some recognition once they're able to bring that off. I also don't believe that the problem is just going to go away overnight and that the military budget is going to be slashed because there's no real mechanism for taking funds away from the military that have always been Anywhere already been assigned the world, to them. Yeah. yeah, but certainly <laughs> not in Thailand. So no one's going to say, we can't imagine a situation 10 years from now where there's a successful autonomy program brought into southern Thailand and some prime minister stands up in parliament and said, okay, we're now going to cut the military budget by 30% because they don't need that money to secure the south anymore. That would be political suicide. So that's not going to happen. So it's not like... Uh, when the military solve the problem, okay. they're going right. to lose benefit because who's going to take the benefit away from them? Uh, under the present political right. realities, that will not happen right. anyway. I mean, so that's a, that's a, actually a kind of conspiracy theory, which is very tempting to a lot of people in the region. But I always say to them, don't you know? I don't really believe that. And yeah. their active role in the political process in Thailand, and I always like to treat them as a an unrecognized political party sure. that has their own dealings and their own agenda, and and and. A lot of the military. Yes, so, yeah, a lot yeah. of activity, right, politically, but without having to function under, under the same rule as a political party, where they can get dissolved, mm -hmm. they can all, all do all of these things, yeah. but um, they're not going away. Right. Rest assured. <laughs> do you want? Our, do, you, do you want to ask him about his favorite dish? Yes, that is our, our podcast thing. What is your favorite dish? Of, oh, fish and chips. 
Christian Jr. <laughs> Don't ask me about my favorite Thai dish. It's going to be very disappointing. And, and I noticed there was no, no tartar sauce. Are you more of a vinegar fish and chips Absolutely. gentleman? Right. And I, I just noticed after lunch that it wasn't even offered. No, Vin- I, I don't bother asking for vinegar in most oh, places. Oh, you in have this resigned. I have. To, yeah, I've long to since naked adapted. fish and chips. Yes, I also don't expect the fish to be in one piece. I mean, that's another. You know, you can't have you can't you have can fish have and f- chips where the fish is cut into three pieces, as I had today. That's already a joke. It has to be one piece. It has to be a fillet. I mean, it does. It yeah. does. There, there are so many things. There, there are. There's a lot. To I think that's a different podcast. There's a lot of progress, but this is not for this. Not for today's topic. I think. No. <laughs> Best best fish and chips I ever had was in Kuching, okay. Sarawak, yeah. at the 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 James Brook um, seaside uh, side of the uh, Sarawak River. There, like, yeah. If you ever go there, I have, next time I have you been, in Sarawak, I've been there, but not for twenty years or so. Okay, I have to go back and try these fish and chips. Yeah, was, I couldn't believe it. I I am vegetarian. I can only speak. Um, I'm I am a, a chips connoisseur. Um, okay. so <laughs> I can only speak on that. Chips are great. Yeah. Well, thank you, Duggan, for for being with us. My pleasure. And I look forward to your talk. Okay. Signing off. Crossroads Southeast Asia is produced by the Northern Illinois University Center for Southeast Asian Studies, a U.S. Department of Education Title VI National Resource Center. Find information about the center's language programs, research opportunities, and scholarships online at www.cseas.niu.edu. This episode's music is from Northern Illinois University graduate and Center for Southeast Asian Studies alum, Joe Kinzer, currently at the School of Music at the University of Washington. Thanks, Joe.